is that on October the 24th, that's two Sundays from today, we're going to be down in the gym. We're going to be doing some renovations here in this space, and so we needed one extra week to just leave things in construction mode. So we're moving everything down to the gym. That's on October the 24th. I invite you to come and be a part of that. Um, if you haven't seen somebody for a little while or some folks that maybe you were wanting to invite from the neighborhood, um, let's get them out here. That would be a really wonderful service. We've got plenty of space. We can um, put everybody in there together. So I hope you'll join us for that. A um, little bit of review, uh, we've, again, we started a short series within the series looking at Romans chapter 14 last week on the, on the issue of conscience, on matters of conscience. Last week, we, last week we learned that there are gray areas in the Christian life. That is, there are areas where the Bible gives no thou shalt or thou shalt not. And so, for example, we mentioned playing cards. Some people think that playing cards, they grew up in a household where playing cards was just an evil thing. But the deal is, there was no such thing as playing cards back in the time when the Bible was written. So the Bible doesn't speak to the issue of playing cards. So some Christians may feel like playing cards is something they shouldn't do, they shouldn't participate in for whatever the reasons. Other Christians may see, I don't see any problem with it at all. And so you have this gray area. You have some people whose conscience it bothers them, some it doesn't. So we call that a gray area of the Christian life. Uh, Paul says if our conscience, though, bothers us, if, our, if that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us, and it says that we shouldn't engage in this behavior and this action to which the Bible does not clearly speak, but if, we, if our conscience tells us we shouldn't do it, then for us it is sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, last verse of that chapter, he says, look, if, if something's done without faith, then it is sin. We were also introduced to the concept of the weak brother and the strong brother last week. Um, the weak brother is the one who uh, feels like they can't play cards, even though the Bible doesn't say there's some prohibition against playing cards. They feel like they can't, their conscience is um, bothering them on that, so the Bible calls that person the weak brother. I call the other person the strong brother. Paul does not use that term. That's a term that I use just to help us differentiate between these two categories of Christians. And also, we were again, we were introduced to those two um, things. Lastly, last week, we said that all of us are weak in some areas of our life. All of us have weak brother tendencies, weak, brother sis weak sister tendencies in some areas of our life, and all of us are strong brothers in some areas of our lives. So we're all a mixture of both. We're not all weak or all strong when it comes to matters of conscience. Now that brings us to today, what we want to ask today is, given that there are these categories operating among us of weak brothers and strong brothers, we all have each of those to a certain degree, um, how do we then relate to one another? How do I relate to my strong brother who feels like he can play the cards when I'm weak in that area, and vice versa? How should my strong brother relate back to me? Today we're going to specifically look at the, this from the perspective of the weak brother. How should the weak brother relate to the strong brother who feels liberty in areas where the weak brother does not? Our scripture comes from Romans chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 4. Just verses 3 through 4. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 3. Here we go. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's walk into those verses together. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, uh, or the middle of verse 3, it says, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You say, Gord, what's going on in this scripture? What is it that Paul's referring to? Again, last week we had talked about how there was meat that was being sacrificed at the pagan temple, and that meat would be processed at the pagan temple and sent down to the local meat market. Some of the meat that was at the local meat market then came from the pagan temples. It had been used as sacrifices there. And then some of the meat, the rest of the meat, was came from straight from the local farms. Well, some of the people in, that Paul's writing to here in Rome 
they felt like it was a real issue for them to eat meat that had been potentially sacrificed at the temple. And so when they walked up to the, to the counter at Stripling, they couldn't tell the difference between what was stuff that had come from the pagan temple and what had come straight from the farm. And so they felt like this was a real matter of conscience for them. And so they felt like it was reconnecting them to an old way of life. And so they abstained from all meat. Um, and then there's, the, and so basically their conscience is bothering them. Do I follow my conscience? Do I not follow my conscience? That's the issue that they felt. And then there's people like the Apostle Paul who says, Romans 14 and verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, Paul's saying, I have no problem at all eating meat, whether it was, came straight from the farm or it was sacrificed at the pagan temple. It doesn't matter to me where it comes from because I know that God owns the cows on a thousand hillsides and it all comes from him anyway. He owns it all anyway. And so where do I care where it's been processed at? I'm just thankful for God for the ribeye that's in front of me on this plate. And as long as I give thanks to him, it doesn't matter to me at all. So how is the weak brother then who feels like they can't eat the meat that's come from the pagan temple, how are they to relate to the Apostle Paul who's sitting over here with his ribeye steak that potentially come from the pagan temple? How, how are they supposed to relate to one another? Paul says, middle of verse 3, talking to the weak brother, the one who cannot eat the steak, he says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. In other words, the tendency of the weak brother is to make his views and his convictions and his standards the standards by which other people should follow. You follow that? The tendency of the weak brother is to make his convictions and his standards and his views the standards by which everybody else should operate. If I'm having trouble with this and it's wrong for me, then that doesn't, doesn't that mean that other people feel the same way? Didn't they? And so that's where, that's right. And so the weak brother is feeling this. When we take the position of expecting other Christians to live by our standards, that is where problems begin to boil. We may find ourselves saying things like, I don't see how anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ could wear a two-piece bathing suit. And we judge that sister. Or we say, I don't see how anybody who listens to music like that could call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't think God works through people who listen to music like that. And we judge them, and we call them backsliders, and we call them compromisers, and we call them libertines. Friends, that is judging people, and we all do this in varying ways. You say, no, I don't. I would never say something like that. Well, you may not have said it, but I bet you thought it. You know, friends, we may bite our tongue, but that doesn't mean we bite our thoughts. And that's what Paul is saying. He's pointing out our tendency to judge others according to the standards that we hold on the gray areas of Scripture. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. I say, hold on just a second, Gordon. Is it not possible that somebody who is, you know, has these liberties in these areas, is it not possible that they are a backslider? Is it not possible that they are a compromiser and a libertine? I mean, am I just supposed to pretend like that's not, there's not something wrong here, that something's going on, that they're behaving in a way that's, that's, contrary to scripture or that's contrary to good conduct am i just supposed to brush all that under the rug and just pass it aside well that's a really good question it's a good point it is possible that the person is a libertine and that they are backsliding but again what i want to point us back to and what paul is pointing us back to is that what is the basis upon which we are making our judgment of them is it the basis of an absolute moral truth from scripture no Remember, we're talking about gray areas to which the Bible does not explicitly say this is wrong and this is right. 
And so these are matters of conscience on which we are judging people. We are judging them on matters uh, of gray areas. And so when it comes to these gray areas, the biblical position is, look, we need to be willing to give latitude to people and, we ne- and not judge them. Paul says, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? The other person in that verse is God. And the servant is the person who um, is exercising liberty in a gray area. Paul reminds us, look, that person we're making judgments about, they don't answer to me. He's saying they don't answer to you. The person that they answer to is Almighty God. So when it comes to these gray areas, we ought not judge. When I was a little boy, sometimes I would go to my mom and I would whine to her about something that my brother was doing that I didn't think he should be doing, and I got a standard response from her. See if this sounds familiar to you. I would hear, Gordon, you worry about you, and I'll worry about your brother. I'm sure some of you have heard that before. I'm sure some of you who have had little people uh, running around you before have said things similar to that. Um, You worry about you. Let me worry about your brother. Now, why is it that that is such good advice for parents to children, but we don't think it applies to adults? Hmm. Paul goes on to say, verse 4, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. Skip forward to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother in Christ? Or why do you despise your brother in Christ who's over there eating the ribeye steak that potentially came from the pagan temple, who has, feels liberty in that area? Paul says, why do we do that when we know that all will stand before the judgment of Christ? In other words, if there is a problem and that person really is a libertine and that person really is a, a compromiser or a backslider, they really are abusing their liberties. Paul says, don't you know that God's not going to allow them to just get away with that, that someday we're all going to have to stand and give account before God? So eventually, that's going to happen. Verse 12, each of, us will have, or each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. In other words, the Holy Scriptures are saying, you worry about you, and let God worry about your brother or your sister. All right, let me sum up. There are weak brothers and weak sisters, strong brothers and strong sisters when it comes to the gray areas of the Christian life. I might feel liberty in some particular area of life that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly to, and somebody else might not feel that same liberty, and vice versa. We are all a combination of both of these. None of us is all strong or all weak. And so the Holy Scripture says when it comes to these gray areas, if you're the weak brother or the weak sister, that we need to be careful not to judge careful not to hold others to the same standard of truth that we feel compelled to uphold. Let God be the judge. He will do a much better job of things than you and I are capable. All right, well, that's as far as we want to go with our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, uh, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, I really kind of feel like as I was going through these verses that Paul answered the question. He says, don't judge. I mean, what more is there to say, right? And so what I'd like to do uh, is to tweak that question a little bit and with the time I have remaining and to, to instead ask the question, what difference does this make to our church? What difference does this make to our church? Next week, we're going to talk about, remember, the strong brothers. We're going to look at this from the perspective of what should the strong brother do in these gray areas of life when they feel certain liberties. We're going to flip that on them. But again, this week, we're still talking about the weak brother. But how, what difference does this make to our church? Because when a local church begins operating in the shoes of a weak brother or in the shoes of a weak sister, judging other people by the standards of conscience, friends, that can be a really dangerous 
position. And so what I want to talk about with the time I have remaining is what difference does Paul's teaching here make for the church? When the church as a whole sees some issue where one person feels liberty or more liberty than they do, and they pick up on this theme of judgment, and the church as a whole begins to judge people on the basis not of the absolute moral truths of Scripture, but rather on the gray areas and what our conscience is telling us to do. When churches as a whole begin to do that, we, call, we have a term for that. We call that legalism. Let me talk a little bit about legalism. This is what legalism is not. <clears throat> legalism is not taking an uncompromising stand on the absolute truths of Scripture. Um, legalism... Uh, is not taking uncompromising truth on the deity of Christ. It's not taking an uncompromising stand on the, on the virgin birth or on the resurrection or on the return of Christ or on the moral truths of Scripture. Friends, that is, that's not legalism. That is orthodoxy. And that's orthodoxy of the very best kind. We should take a, take a firm stand on those uncompromising truths of Scripture. That's not legalism. Rather, legalism is this. It's when a person or group begins to make dogmatic black and white pronouncements in an area where the Bible does not. And then when that person or group begins evaluating other people's spirituality based on these self-contrived pronouncements. Let me say that one more time. Legalism is when a person or group begins to make dogmatic, that is, black and white pronouncements in an area where the Bible does not. And then when that person or group begins evaluating other people's spirituality based on these self-contrived pronouncements. Churches all around the world do this and have been doing this for centuries. The church leadership comes to the opinion that a particular gray area of the Christian life, whether it's dancing or playing cards or going to the movies or whatever, that would be unhealthy, it would be potentially damaging for its members to participate or engage in that activity, even though, again, there's no specific prohibition in Scripture about that. And that if we let our people get involved in these things, then they're going to have to begin, uh, then they're going to begin to have some problems. And so we are doing people a favor. We are doing people a divine favor by saying those activities, even though there's no specific biblical prohibition against it, even though we have liberty in those areas, even though it's a gray area we're supposed to follow our conscience, we as a church leadership, we as a church believe that it would be wrong for anybody to engage in those activities. Again, even though the Bible says that they have liberty. And so the church decides that for people's own good, we're going to take away that liberty. And so the church pronounces that this is no longer a gray area, but rather it's a black and white area and says that this is sin and that is sin. And if you come to a church and you like that and you feel a particular liberty in an area where the church has declared, no, this is not a liberty, this is actually a black and white issue, if you engage in that, it's sin for you. If you feel liberty in that area, they will tell you that you are a backslider and a compromiser and a libertine, and they'll tell you from up front at the pulpit. Okay? That is legalism, taking an uncompromising stand on something that is a non-absolute, a gray area in the Christian life. And folks, this might be good for outward conformity. In other words, if, we're all, if all we're interested in is producing churches where everybody lives according to a certain rules and regulations, then legalism is great. It works. It does. But I have learned over my years of being a Christian that legalism is tremendously damaging both inside and outside of the church. So let's talk a little bit about how legalism can be damaging inside the church. For people inside the church, legalism puts them on a performance trip with regard to their relationship with God. And it often breeds incredible hypocrisy. It leads to cynicism, a loss of confidence in Christianity, 
Oftentimes, young people who grow up in legalistic backgrounds or legalistic churches, they know nothing about the reality of Christ. They know nothing about the indwelling Holy Spirit, and they're not guided by the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Rather, they're just following all the rules that their church has said they have to follow. And uh, they, all they see is outward conformity and the works of the flesh and human effort. And as a result, many of these young people become spiritual casualties in churches like that. That as soon as they can get away from that church, as soon as they can get away from that home, they are eager to just bolt and never look back. And it is a hard road for people who grew up in a church like that ever to make their way back into the church again. So you can see how legalism can hurt church on the inside. But not only does it hurt the church from the inside, it can also hurt the church from the outside. By this I mean that the way that people outside of the church, lost people, view the church itself. Legalism gives lost people a totally distorted view of what Christianity is all about. All they can see is that Christianity is just rules of what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, and they think that that's what Christianity is, that it's not this life-transforming power that comes from the Holy Spirit. You, feel the for, you get the forgiveness of sins from, through Lord Jesus Christ. You get a fresh start in life. They don't see any of that. All they see are all these rules, and they feel like the church is just all about these rules, and they begin to think that that's what Christ is all about. So often, people that we accuse of rejecting Christ are not rejecting Christ at all. They're rejecting that form of Christianity, a form of Christianity that is legalistic, that says there's all these do's and don'ts, and, and you know, I'm not sure that I want to go be a part of a place like that, and so they reject the church, but really they're not rejecting the church. They're rejecting what we have made the church to be, and so they don't want to have anything to do with that. All they know of is what they see legalistic Christians doing, and they don't want anything to do with that. Legalism hurts the church inside, and it hurts the church outside. It is true, folks, that when we allow people liberty, we are flirting with danger. And it is true that when we allow people liberty, they may overstep those bounds. But when we begin stepping in as a church and usurping the role of the Holy Spirit, even if we believe it is for people's own good and we start taking black and white positions where the Bible does not, then we are doing an even more dangerous thing. We are bringing hurt and injury and damage both inside and outside of the church. All right, let me close with this. Please note that the Bible nowhere tells the weak brother or the weak sister that they need to stop being weak. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? As we're looking through the scripture, Paul could have just as easily said, you need to get over it. You need to stop acting that way. You need to stop listening to your conscience. You need to just go forward with what, what, is, what I'm telling you is right. Nowhere does the Bible say that you're supposed to stop being weak in whatever the area is of your life where you feel a lack of liberty, where your conscience is bothering you. Friends, <clears throat> instead what the Bible says is for the weak brother or the weak sister to avoid the tendency of judgmentalism. Friends, letting God be the judge of, an other, of other people's lives will shift such a burden off of your shoulders and it will allow the love of God to flow freely from your life into theirs. This is the word of God, friends, for the people of God. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come here today to hear from your word, to be instructed by it, 
Lord, if this, some of this hits us uh, where we're living, we just ask that we would yield that over, we would surrender that over to you, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to work in us and, uh, and through us, God, that if we have a spirit um, of judgmentalism that's operating below the surface, Lord, that we would be able to just release that, relinquish that over to you, know that other people are going to have to stand before you, the great final judge who sees all things, knows all things, And Lord, we just surrender them and that situation into your hands. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body, which you uh, experienced on our behalf. Lord, you could have stood in judgment over us and said, they don't deserve it. Yet, Lord, you showed us mercy, you showed us grace, you showed us forgiveness, despite our rejection, despite our rebellion. And so, God, we now just want to say thank you. Use this time, this quiet space, to work in our hearts, to encourage us, to challenge us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.